What's up? I'm Jeff Weiss, a writer. And I'm No Can Do, possibly a rapper. <laughs> and this is a Shots Fired, a podcast possibly about hip-hop and hoverboards. What's <laughs> Pow. <laughs> yeah, pow. Did you see that hoverboard video, like that that thing where like Schoolboy Q was riding riding a hoverboard? I would have guessed it would have been Kanye first, but <laughs> it was Schoolboy Q. I think it was like uh, you know uh, <laughs> the, the dude from uh, he's Griff from Back to the Future too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was like a, just a gang of like celebrities riding these hoverboards. It was like this this spoof video. I don't know. It was amazing. I believe there was hoverboards for ten minutes. Was Ellen there? Mm. Imagine Ellen riding hoverboards. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like she's 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 a hoverboard type. What are the odds that she doesn't own a hoverboard? <laughs> if it exists, if it yeah, exists, she has it. So uh, what's what's good? You had your birthday. Yeah, I had my birthday. Was that magical? Um, not really. It was a more low key family kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I had for listeners. I had pie, I had pie. I had ice cream. Um, I actually. Uh, I sat and made a beat with my daughter. That was like the highlight of my That's birthday. Cool. We're just hanging out and just. That's it. You didn't have a cake with your face on it or anything. Uh, no, 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 no. A cake with your face. Yeah. Mm-mm, mm-mm. What's up? How was your week, bro? Uh, it was good. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just uh, I interviewed Veruca Salt this morning. Oh yeah. Which was yeah my alternative nation, 1993. Like you know, 12 year old. Like I was you know, very into that band, so it was cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think we all were. Yeah, I think I, I was a big fan of all the... Uh, it's like a girl with the guitar, what? Yeah, I like the Breeders, too, and like yeah, yeah. the Smashing Pumpkins were cool, because they, you know... I still think they're cool. Yeah. They were talking, actually, about how the Smashing Pumpkins were very influential on their uh, on their sound. When they heard Gish by the Smashing Pumpkins, it changed their whole perception of music. I love the titles to those, like, 90s rock <laughs> songs. Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. Yeah, man. Sad Boys. Hashtag. Real Sad Boys. <laughs> yeah, Billy Billy Corgan was the original Sad Boy. Sad boys getting money. I feel like Billy Corgan dressed like a, what's that dude? This a uh, uh, snow or not? What, snow what? from Informer. No, not not from <laughs> Informer. Uh, but what, what's the? Uh, it's the white dude that makes like the weekendy kind of music. He's from like the Midwest. It's, the weekend Afro man. No, the weekend like the weekend. Oh, the weekend. Uh, it's I forgot his name, dude. But somebody played me their record. Uh, whatever, man. Not but, party next door. No, it's not party next. Door. It's a, it's a new artist, but basically, he was wearing a black turtleneck and was just hella pale and just looked like oh, know, spooky black, spooky black, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a he's a he's an OG spooky black, black, <laughs> spooky black. That's a pretty unfortunate name. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's on purpose. <laughs> it is on purpose, and that's kind of I mean, it's kind of lame, but yeah. whatever. Are you a fan of spooky black? No. <laughs> Not particularly either. I um, mean, I heard one song. Yeah. Maybe maybe I just seen an album cover, yeah. and I think I just guessed what the song sounded like. Yeah, I also interviewed Wiz Khalifa, which was interesting. Mm, how was that? <laughs> he showed up, like, three hours late, which, like, as to be expected, like, my editor was, like, kind of like, oh, you should, you know, get there, like, an hour after the photo shoot starts. But that was, like, two hours before Wiz even showed up. Mm-hmm. And he shows up with, like, ten people and, like, the cutest puppy dog you've ever seen. Yeah. And just, like, puts, like, a mason jar of weed that's, like, a quarter pound in a jar. Yeah. And then just proceeds and, like... Well, here's the thing. <clears throat> it says a lot about the person. Was the puppy leashed or was it unleashed? Uh, it was unleashed. Oh, yeah. That's... You know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> Trust, baby. That Trust. puppy was having the time of its fucking life. Yeah. Could you imagine if your fucking owner was a stoner? Yeah. It's just like, dude, it's, it's fucking snacks all the time. Oh, you need some cutest snack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's like giving his, yeah, uh, we, like weed Rice Krispie treats to his dog. He's like, no, it's fine. It's, it's my dog. Um, That's messed up. He had man. his own weed. He had Khalifa Kush. Really? Yeah. No, because I told him that uh, he was rolling up. He took an Instagram of the. I wrote that uh, like Nick Young Swaggy P story, and it was like on the cover of LA Weekly. And so he's like rolling up 
a split like a joint on the cover of the LA Weekly, and he's like, "Roll one up for I'm gonna roll one up for you, Swaggy P." And then I told him, I was "Like, yeah, that was my story." And he's like, "Oh, for real? Like energies?" He's like, "Hit that, hit that Khalifa Kush, <laughs> hit that Khalifa Kush." I was like, "Oh, he was like, hit that KK," and I was like, "Okay." I was like, didn't know what it was for a second. I was like, "Oh, it's weed." Yeah, yeah, I will take that. He doesn't even call it weed anymore. He probably no. doesn't. Yeah, that's like how cool. much do you smoke a day? He's like like three ounces. <laughs> nah, nah. <laughs> with like I think with all of him and his friends, mm-hmm. they were gonna go to the studio and then. Um, but he was like, I realized why he was like, because I've never I've never been like a huge Wiz Khalifa fan by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I realized that he's the chillest bro in like the history of chill bros. Chill bros. Yeah, like he's the uber chill bro. Yeah, he's like the Nietzschean chill bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was, but he's the uber chill bro. Yeah. Uber chill. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. And so, anyways, but um. Well, oh, oh yeah, some we more talk about depressing news. <laughs> oh yeah, and more. Well, you were talking about snow earlier, so I was going to refer to the new snow of this generation, Justin Bieber. Informa. I kind of like I bought 12 Inches of Snow the album which another unfortunate name <laughs> that's like, uh, like some <laughs> you know it's a porn star's uh, fucking uh, a bio but I, I I can say that Snow I'm, I think Snow is tight I, snow, I kind of agree Snow was fucking he got amazing. a raw deal because Jim Carrey just, just destroyed him on Living Color well I, I feel like his career ended because he had a criminal record and he couldn't really Tour. He couldn't. That's tour. also true. Which, to be tour fair, like was like I said, like even though Snow had like an actual street cred. No, yeah, yeah. he had it. Like, yeah, his 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 first informer was about snitches. Yeah, for one, you know, uh, I want to say like he he grew up in this like project in, in well, I think, Toronto. And Toronto is pretty yeah. mixed with like a, like, well, a lot it, of West it, Indian influence. It was a it was a I like the the project consisted of most mostly like Irish and Jamaican, which is like two two of the two yeah. of the coolest coolest groups of people that you can be around. Yeah, but also when it gets when when it gets fucking hood, yeah. <laughs> these yeah. are the, the most hoodest people you can be around too. The most fucking, uh, yeah. So, um, but big up to Snow. I would love to have Snow on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know, bro. That'd be awesome. I don't know. I don't think. I don't think the streets left him yet. I don't want Snow in my studio like that. <laughs> <laughs> snow gum. Snow gum through. Just snatching guitars and amps. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Bieber, we were saying we watched that earlier. Um, apparently, he, he told a racist joke and then. Saying like a like a racist, how'd you define that? The like, joke that he told before, the joke that he told was what what it, the it's like a chainsaw. It's, it's yeah, like why are black people afraid of chainsaws? Because it goes vroom, nigga, 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 vroom, or something like that, which is a joke that like, you know, I've heard, I've heard that joke before. Yeah, like like fifth grade idiots. Yeah, but I, I you know when I heard it, it was like a black person telling the joke, and this was a long yeah. time ago. Just you know. Yeah. But seeing, so seeing that come out of his mouth, I'm not like pro censorship or nothing like that. Yeah. But seeing that come out of his mouth, it just it, it's a little silly. Yeah. No, yeah. And it's a young Bieber too. But then the second video with him like in front of the camera singing like the <laughs> one less lonely nigger. Oh my god. <laughs> It's like a bad Dave Chappelle. It's like a Dave Chappelle skate gone wrong. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, it, it's like it's you're conflicted because you're like, oh well, you know he is 14 years old, which like to be fair, like no one should have anything that they did at 14 years old held against them. Mm-hmm. But um, he's still Justin Bieber, and you're like, yeah, you're kind of an asshole. Like it makes me think, <laughs> what kind of community did he come from where where that's cool? Like not he, where Snow is from in Canada. Not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not that's not happening. I mean, like. For even somebody to actually tape you 
doing that and think that's funny and all that shit. That, it, it's 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 really that's like a reflection on again like with him and his fucking parents and and whatever yeah. wherever he's from. Yeah. You know. But what's up with like you know the the fucking the racism like the white guy racism right now. Here the racist getting un- unmasked. Dude, yeah. fucking. Although Mac- Macklemore, oh God! Macklemore, Donald Sterling, Justin Bieber, and it's like, and it's like black people. Didn't we already go through a lot? Like, goddamn. For personal amusement, I find Macklemore is inclusion kind of funny because I don't think he's really racist, but I think he's just dumb. <laughs> yeah, just like, bro, what's up? Yeah, he's just like, no, no, this is a song about thrift shopping. I wanted to look like a thrifty fellow. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to look frugal, so I went to the Marshalls. Whatever. <laughs> I went to the Nordstrom's Rack. Meh. <laughs> Thrift shop. Uh, Nordstrom's Rack. I love Nordstrom's Rack. Yeah, my grandfather, when he was buried, uh, let the rabbi, because he's buried, you know, at the cemetery, like off Bury the freeway. Bury me in the Nordstrom's Rack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, literally the rabbi, like, made a joke about how my grandfather loved the Nordstrom's Rack across the freeway, you know, at the bridge in Westchester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> And like he was like, and he, he said across the freeway. And he's like, and he's like, yeah. He's like, and Andrew would be very happy to be buried across from the Nordstrom's rack. And you're like, was he buried at that uh, the cemetery over there by? Uh, uh, yeah, Hillcrest, I think, or not Hillcrest is the country club. Uh, Hillside. Hillside, yeah, yeah. You know, man. Al Jolson. Culver City guy. Early, early dubious person in blackface. Yeah. In the in tradition of Justin Bieber. Yeah, dude. Well, but, I mean, how do you feel about it? Because I'm, I'm emotional, so I don't want to fly off the handle. So you, 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 you <laughs> you're should so speak. No, I mean, I don't know. It's it's not really fair. I mean, just that he's Justin Bieber, so it's like it's not like I ever took him as kind of like, I'm like, oh, my God, this paragon of our community is all of a sudden revealed to be something he's not. Yeah. He's just Bieber. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like he's a void that'll get filled. And I it'll be somebody I, I don't think I think it doesn't matter I don't how, think it was how does it how do you feel how do you feel when the Eminem had the, that tape about oh like, it's kind of like that actually it's just like that except yeah. for the fucking news cycle is crazy now. News, if Eminem had that happen to him in like 2014 he'd probably be tartan feathered yeah you know uh yeah, Eminem actually was more. You're like, that's a really bad, you know. You're like, because yeah. Eminem, I got was the biggest Eminem fan. Yeah, but in Eminem's defense, where there's no defense, he was like saying that about some girl that he dated that broke his heart. So he just kind of flipped out. Totally. It just, it just he's yeah. Like, I'm gonna record a freestyle yeah. about this bitch. Well, also know? Eminem, like you believed more like that he was. I mean, like Eminem, like obviously had grown up. He had come from a community that was mostly black, so it wasn't yeah. like. Yeah, Bieber, where you're like you're just like the teeny bopper, like mop it. I know, I know some white kids that are, that are from that are from the hood. They're from like the hoods I'm from, and it's like that Dave Chappelle joke where just like that dude has probably had to do some of the craziest things totally to get accepted. It's like Cheddar Bob, yeah, that guy was down for the stupid, but yeah, yeah, but I don't think it's totally Cheddar Bob, but like I feel like there's like you know I know uh, a a girl that was like. A, a white chick that grew up in the hood and like her name wasn't even her name it was like a white girl <laughs> like you know what I'm saying I know a fucking surfer from uh, Hawthorne that like you know if he grew up to be a tough dude because he was always getting bullied for being like the one you know yeah oh you know white dude and I, I'm, I, and I imagine like you know somebody that grows up in that community and gets bullied and is like 15 14 might just want you know af- after having so many racial slurs or having so many things against them that uh that were done because they're 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 the color of their skin yeah you know might might have something to say but i don't think bieber really ever had you know like no, <laughs> yeah they, they, they might have like you're might a have multi-millionaire at 14 <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah they they you know they might have had an issue it doesn't excuse it whatsoever yeah. and it doesn't excuse the people that bully them um but uh you know i i, I don't think that uh I, yeah i don't think bieber should ever 
really uh, come back from this. I think this should be the this should really be the end. He's not making records. Yeah, he's hanging out with fucking Little Za. I don't know, you know <laughs> Little Za. How dare you besmirch the name of Little Za? Yeah, yeah. Know. I mean, people. Yeah, I mean, who? I, I don't think people. are also never had like he's, he's certainly not going to be Justin Timberlake at this point. So no, no, <laughs> I don't think that's a, yeah. But um, anyways, we should go into this episode. It's obviously uh oh yeah, I forgot that we had a podcast. <laughs> yeah, uh, mm. good one, obviously. Uh, the Low and Theory Festival, which Low is coming up. Low and Theory uh. coming up this weekend, and the entire Low and Theory did an interview for the. I think the, was the first time you guys were all ever in America doing an interview together. This is the first time we we were on uh, this weird Japanese radio show in two thousand and eight. Japanese get everything first. <laughs> yeah, dude, shoes, <laughs> music, and everything. Phones, they're like you know two thousand thirty yeah. phone. Yeah, but you know what? You Nintendo. can really go, you can really go. Out and flip an iPhone in Japan if you get it the first day. Yeah, here. Super oh, Famicom, Super Famicom, Neo Geo. The list goes on. Yeah, yeah. but no. Um, but that was a weird, weird thing though. That that interview, like the guy was like, "So you guys are all a rock band?" <laughs> like what? <laughs> he didn't Which understand. is pretty much how the interview goes. Yeah. But this is, I think, this is the most in depth um, we've ever gone together to tell the story, and and I'm and I'm proud to be a part of it. You know. The shots fired you know doing doing this every two weeks not to get all sentimental and emotional but I'm going yeah. to doing this every week for like two years and uh, I don't think I'd be able to you know keep up with something like this if uh, I didn't I haven't experienced the success and of of doing something like that previously which is low in theory which is a weekly event that's just you know amazing content just given for the sake of art you know and uh, yeah yeah uh, the most amazing individuals I've had a chance to uh, to work with and play music with and and uh, meet in my life. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is a good one, and it's really mean, meaningful to me. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. Cool. We got to say we're on. Hey, this oh, is on. Shots Fired. We're on. Let's All right, go. with Flo and Theory. Yeah. Come. I'm in both of these things. I'm in Shots Fired and Flo <laughs> and Theory. Yeah, you're just constantly wearing different hats. I'm the L- Venn diagram. Literally. In the middle of the Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah. I haven't worn a hat in a while, but... <laughs> Yeah. So uh, we can just start talking, I guess, about you know it was a van ride up to San Francisco it was sort of like the genesis of how it all kind of got started. I mean, I think that was the genesis of you know uh, me, Willie, and Elvin talking about you know just hanging and finding a chemistry. Um, but just definitely that whole experience, kind of like I think want to say sowed the seeds. That same trip, Flying Lotus was on the uh, in a different van, and we were all on this kind of road trip up to SF and. Um, I want to say when we got back, I'd even kind of brought up the idea of starting some sort of weekly event, but uh, it wasn't until I went to a birthday party at the airliner and, and found it, and then I had been working with Edit at the time on his uh, stuff with Alpha Pup and the Glitch Mob stuff at the time, and I called him about it. We went down there and checked it out, and then you know thought about kind of what might be the ideal um, lineup. And that was at that time what we had available to us was you know Elvin, uh, DJ Nobody, Gaslamp Killer, um, and No Can Do was MC. So what were you doing at the time? What was you just moved to LA from San Francisco, right? I hadn't even moved yet, had I? I was. You had just moved. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. I actually after that show in San Francisco with you guys, Space Invaders too. After that show, Elvin and I did with Flylo and Kuma. And Prefuse and Andy Votel, Cherry Stones. That was a really good show. Um, we used the same van uh, for half of my luggage. 
I packed all my records in the back of that van to save space so I didn't have to get a U-Haul. And then I ended up having to get a U-Haul after all. And I moved to LA after that trip. That was actually the very beginning of it all. Nice. And I was playing vinyl still, like all of us, Everybody except, except for Kev, actually. Kev was futuristic from, from the time, from the inception from, yeah, of that Low was, End. That was actually the On very... torque. Yeah, that was the impetus for me to do it, actually. Um, once I knew the new club was starting, I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going to get a, one of these digital things finally. And Yeah. Yeah, I was with the torque thing for the first year or two. That's right. I think Elvin and I were still heavy on Dub Lab. Mm. And we were uh, really just trying to do gigs in L.A. and the Bay and wherever the hell we were getting booked. I know Elvin was on tour with... Mars Volta and Prefuse. Elvin was doing the most. You've I been think. doing you well. You just were doing the blank blue stuff around that, weren't you? Mm -hmm. Yes, I was. That was around 06, 07. Yeah, Willie and I were still on vinyl. I actually gave away my first Serato box. Isn't that the dumbest thing ever? Dude, I sold my first one because my computer couldn't handle it. I just gave mine to Rash Rashid, you know, Prefuse's friend. Yeah. Just like, I don't even, I can't, I don't think this is going to catch on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I couldn't do it. It crashed my iBook. Yeah, yeah. My G3 iBook crashed every time I plugged it in. And then I just went back to playing vinyl because when I was touring, I was playing it so much. So that's why I was still rocking it when we started. What were you guys all spinning at the time? Um, Dabri, Dilla. Yeah, like when we were doing Madly the beats. sketchbook nights, um, we were playing like a combination of like Dilla instrumentals and Prefuse and Daubry, and then also Mr. Wazo. Like, yeah, Mr. Wazo, and then I would even play like Net Neptune's instrumentals. Some people yeah. would play Timbaland instrumentals, and there were really no quote unquote beat scene records, so we just kind of had to play a lot of instrumentals. Usually, like a lot of rap instrumentals and mix in with like that. I guess at the time you could consider it IDM-ish sort of beat stuff like Boards of Canada and things like that. Anything that was 90 BPM that wasn't like techno, we would somehow try to mix that with the rap stuff. And we managed to get like broadcast. Mm -hmm, throw and, other stuff in there. Yeah, Portishead broadcast, Massive Attack, you know, Trip Hop, Classics, Tricky. Mm -hmm. like I'm glad that era is over. Oh, man. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm bringing that back, man. Stop. Just save me from you. That era never Stop. ended. What's he talking about? No. We're that shit that never time. ended. That's low end in a nutshell. Oh, no. It was so... I don't know. It, it was I, from MC's perspective. It was like uh, I think it was very. It was difficult to to rap over. I like the sweet spot when the beat scene actually like was birthed. You know, I like when I want to say when when I first when I first heard like uh, like uh, Lotus nineteen eighty three stuff and like what year was that? Oh six. Oh six. Yeah. That was oh six. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what else? What other records? Like when? When did? When did like No Sage's beats start coming into the fold? That was oh nine. When, when he like started playing his beats, we started playing he, in oh seven, oh eight. Yeah, he was working at Turntable Lab. He had his demos at Turntable Lab. No Sage yeah. was giving him out the Octopus, Octopus EP. Yeah, I mean, he needed the Aquarius, wasn't it? Aquarium or something, or something Aquarium. like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah me and uh, Dave had done a warehouse party in two thousand five where we did this. It was almost like a early low-end lineup -ish. yeah it was like Daedalus and edit and, yeah yeah um and we had elliot lip on that lineup and yeah. um yeah. and then we had an open turntable that night which we had you know thought kids would show up to you know sign up to want to play early at the party but of course only two people showed up but um one of them was nosage 
Wow. He told yeah. me he found out about it on your mess on D's message board. Yeah. Yeah, That's he awesome. was on that. Yeah. 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 yeah, he was a he was like in the turntablism, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah. 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 And I always tell him, man, why don't you cut it up during one of your sets, man? Like people would trip out, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is he pretty good? Um, from what you've seen? I don't play the scratching. Yeah, he's yeah, he's good, man. And um, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people don't know he came from that that um turntable school, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, oh, go ahead. I was going to ask, how do you think turntablism kind of affected kind of low in theory and kind of you guys' approach to DJing? Um, well, for me, I mean, that's just yes. my my angle yeah, of it. Like, yeah. like I I take these beats and I I try to flip them live and mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Try to juggle them back and forth and scratch a little bit. So that's kind of my style, and I just try to bring what I learned in hip hop and add it to 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 low end. You know what I mean? Definitely. Thank God. Well, I, I mean, feel like in yeah. a way too. I mean, I think turntablism is, you know, had a huge, you know, influence on a lot of the people who are big making beats today. I mean, Hudmo, you know, mm-hmm. among them, Cashmere Cat, like A Track, right, yeah. Right. yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, A Track, exactly. These are all people whose past is deeply rooted in turntablism, and it's interesting to see that uh, that effect, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you think a lot of the young artists that kind of came through kind of have absorbed like that kind of? I mean that ethos i mean I, I like to think so i mean but that said i mean most of these folks now are on controllers you know what i mean so it's a little different but i think the spirit of it and the idea of you know that kind of manual approach to affecting audio and composing in a certain way and the music having a certain you know swing to it um you know we're all out here from the west coast you know where turntablism is arguably you know the real the biggest stronghold for it is here was there an over? Uh, obviously, you did Concrete Jungle before, mm-hmm. and uh, what did you learn, kind of, from doing that that you kind of applied to Lowen? Uh, I mean, I just got, I just learned then, you know, how you deal with agents and how you have to, how far out you have to keep a club booked, and you know, the kind of personnel required to to have a club actually happen, and us have the resources, the support staff we need uh, for it to happen correctly. Um, also just running a show, you know, um, staying on time, you know, uh, with what time, you know, the set changes and being really efficient with that. I think that's a big part of what makes our thing successful and, and run smooth for us. Um, and, uh, and honestly too, I just realized that, you know, most, um, big weekly clubs, there's a really strong resident cast. So having a resident, you know, really strong resident, uh, lineup, uh, it was really important to that, and um, and just trying to, I don't know, just knowing that the business side of it, that it's not just about having a party, you know what I mean? It's about operating a, a club where you're thinking many months in advance. Was there an overarching idea that you kind of, of the kind of music that you wanted kind of low end to have? I mean, when did like the idea of beat music kind of start to come into... I mean, that's arguable, play? right? I mean, you know, I, to me, beat music is from the 80s, you know? Um, this is just our take on it. Um, what's what's like a example of beat music from the '80s that you could recognize as like beat music? Egyptian Lover. Um, okay. This dude, unknown know, I mean, DJ, he actually was unknown DJ was from LA and was instrumental. Really? You know what I mean? He's one of the few dudes in the electro scene that didn't have a vocalist on his stuff. That's yeah. tight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was Automator did a record in like '89, right? Music to Murder by that was also instrumental. Yeah. 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 There was a whole like electro hot movement in the 80s where they were just using old drum machines and um, either scratching over it 
or just doing weird chants with echoes you know what i mean and then they had, they had a dub version on the flip side and yeah and, and that the, was just instrumental at the end of the two live crew records too there was a mega mix for mm. on every single one yeah so there was always an instrumental like that was the first time i was like damn there's no rapper it's just I mean, then you grow older, you're like, oh, that's just incredible bongo band being cut up like 10 yeah. times. Yeah. But at the time, you're like, there's no rapping. Beats. It's so weird, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was also beats on uh, Public Enemies records. Yeah. Like, they would have their own title and just be like a two-minute little beat. That shit, would, that would always be my favorite part of the records, too. Nice. I'm pretty much searching for 12 inches strictly for instrumentals so no matter what hip-hop 12 inch it was like mm -hmm. i was not buying it i didn't understand you know the the fact that it was louder mm -hmm. than the album i wasn't even thinking of that like for me vinyl just fed back it was always like you had to turn the bass down a little bit because the vinyl would just feed back it was so sensitive i wasn't even thinking a 12 inch would have you could play it way louder because yeah. it was cut just two songs per side instead of five songs per side but i was looking for those instrumental instrumentals of my favorite hip-hop tracks and a lot of them like dave said it would be a tv track mm. and it would have like the dub track and it would still have the hook in it yeah be like damn it why can't i find the instrumental so we i was on a hunt for instrumentals of every hip-hop track that i could find at anything nice what's the uh what's the what are the many names that uh that have that have come not come but that beat music has been called i know i've seen like everybody like you know get a uh, wonky that was that was like the biggest that was like a punch trip hop was the first one that, that was just, i'm uh, still just, cool with that one but trip hop that trip hop was good but, oh, i mean yeah. like in in low end, I, I was there laser the canadians did that i just want to say that right now aqua crunk and aqua crunk was the brits i think that was the brits either way i think it was both failed wonky was the brits too wonky was definitely the brits i think flying lotus Trip -hop was who who yeah. was considered Aqua Crunk? Flying Lotus, and then he shot Rusty. it down. I think yeah, both of them. Rusty, yeah, wow. and then Lotus, I think, shot it down on Twitter real fast. Okay, <laughs> and then, like I think he just Dude, I remember Aqua watching Crunk Will. Real, that's I remember a real watching genre. Will. Some kid said. Uh, said play some wonky bass music and then uh -huh. he literally stopped his set and was like what the fuck is that uh, we don't play that <laughs> and here uh -huh. you fucking just went back into your set but you really were perplexed by that question <laughs> what i meant to say was get the fuck out right now <laughs> security get this guy out of here right now he just pulled his wiener out i swear i saw it his nobody else saw it i saw it I mean, the dubstep was pretty big, like, in Osa. I mean, like, I mean, I think, like, now when we talk about dubstep, like, everyone has to, like, air quote it because it kind of went off course. But, I mean, 2007, 2008, it was pretty... Sure. I mean, we, you know, and we, as you know, we've gone through, you know, different phases with the club where we're, you know, certain things that are inspiring us at the moment that we find to be current and relevant. You know, we try to incorporate that. Uh, I like to think that we still play dubstep. I like to, th you know, which we do. I mean... Um, I like to think we play every form of music and really the idea that we're trying to do as DJs is trying to connect the dots between all these different beats. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? The aesthetic is so similar with so much of it, you know, so much of electronic music and anything that's a beat, be it hip hop beat or a dubstep beat or a jungle beat or, you know, drum and bass, yep. trap, you know, it's all, it's all beats. It's yeah. just different application of tempo, uh, different application of uh, percussion, you know, rhythm things. But so much of his shared elements and 808 stuff and 303 stuff, which is, you know, and 909 uh, samples, which 
have really been the backbone of every song, all these forms of beats. How much do you think, like, at the at the onset of it was kind of, like, getting bored with kind of where... I mean, because, you know, obviously it starts, like, 06. Were you, were you guys kind of, like, bored with kind of where hip-hop was at that point and how much of that, like, factored into, you know... No. I mean, you know? well, I mean, I wasn't bored. I mean, I was inspired enough by what was happening to to want to do a club with these guys and, and try it. I mean, at the, at the onset of it, at least for me personally, it was... It was just another. It was another club that's going to be in L.A. You know, I I don't I don't think anyone here uh, foresaw what ended up happening, and being that it, it kind of went on the world stage, and we attracted all these people that want to become a part of it, and the ascent of Flying Lotus, and you know, Brain Feeder, and the entire you know Alpha Pup mechanism. I mean, that was not on the agenda. Yeah, know? I mean, it was pretty empty at first, like for the first yeah. like year and a half, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first year was pretty slow we had our we had some big nights maybe had like out of those first 52 weeks maybe 10 of them i wouldn't cracked, say it was you know? empty it was like it, it to me that first year was just like cheers i, f I remember like everybody, <laughs> everybody real friends like, yeah it was like me and all my homies that you know i was at project blow with or just people that like co-workers and stuff like that mm -hmm. you know like elvin and, and his friends and family you and your, your your friends and family you like you edit and his group of individuals that he came with and you know like like i want to <laughs> Why are you laughing? This group of individuals. <laughs> They're his friends. They're also human beings. They're human. people. They, they might be wearing human. leather and feather stuff with <laughs> huge encrusted crust quartz crystals. They look like they're burner, burners. <laughs> but, uh, but what I can say, it was, it was really it was really homey, and I feel like those those times, at least for me, man, hearing all the hearing all the stuff being played, and even like what I was there for. I was there just to practice freestyling for battles, you know? I mean, it must have been really different from you, obviously, coming from Project Blood. Like, no, no. Raj G was a DJ there. Pudge was a DJ there. It was like... DiBiase. DiBiase, definitely, you know? Uh, Hometown I, heroes. I think it was more... Uh, I think it was more of a concentrated dose of that, you know? Uh -huh. It was more of a concentrated dose of what, what I think has been happening in L.A. Well, it was and, less about the MCs and the battles. It was more about the beats and the producers yeah. behind the, the music that and the everyone DJ was too. rapping. Too. Also, yeah, yeah. too, I mean, I think production values, you know, um, a lot of these, you know, I think a lot of the events that were happening uh, that were could be considered anything beat scene related, say like Sketchbook, you know what I mean, or some of the Art Don't Sleep parties. I mean, these were not, uh, you know, they, were, they weren't being done with like big sound systems. They didn't or, sound good. Yeah, and that was, I mean, from the very first night, we had a turbo sound rig in the back. Um, from the very beginning, it was, you know, we were trying to do that right. And... I always felt that, hey, you know, if the sound is really, really, really good, that's just going to bring out the best of everybody, bring out mm -hmm. better performances uh, from the performers. It'll, uh, for the actual people being there, it'll be much more enjoyable for them. And, you know, um, it definitely, obviously there was a, people were receptive to that. I was think that's what made everybody want to play there. It was like, dude, I want to hear my, my stuff on these speakers. Mm -hmm. And not only did it make everyone want to play there, but it literally changed the music. Yeah, yeah. That sound system, <clears throat> low end theory sound system, changed the music. Mm -hmm. The beats changed. Even I did never thought of adding an 808 to my drums ever in a million years. That wasn't my style. It was just live drums, mm -hmm. hard ass breaks. And but then I noticed they weren't hitting in the system the way the drum machine beats were. And I was mm -hmm. like, there's got to be a go between. There's got to be a bridge between the old sound and the new sound and finding that has still is still my struggle but it came the, the need for that came from low end yo i think that when 
what you're saying also goes back to what you asked earlier. Like, was there kind of a moment? I think the song that kind of bridged all that for like the uh, for all of us was that Mr. Wazo song, the Analog Worms Attack. Exactly. Because I don't think before inch. that song there was a song that all four of us played like on the regular. Maybe like a Dobry song or two. What year was that? I don't know. We started in 06, so it was probably like the end of 07 or something. But that song came out in 99. Yeah, it's old, but for some reason we just started playing it again. And then I noticed that all of us would take a round at it. Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, damn, this is something because it hadn't really happened until that point. And it had the dirty drums that you liked, yep. but it had the sub yeah. that was like modern shit. Yep. So that was kind of like, for me, the one of the blueprint beats. To me, the blueprint beats are that one and... um you know, Roots Maneuvers beat because the same thing. It had the sub, but it still had the you know hip hop drums. What song is that? Just, um, just for the kids. Witness out there. the fitness. Witness the witness. Wit- dub, witness though. the fitness. The witness yeah. dub is the one all the beat guys played because yeah, I still play it. Beat, and, but it had all these echoes and shit going through it, so it kept it interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's the sound system and wanting to sub out combined <laughs> with wanting to keep shit dirty like you know premiere or, or you know that old influence or whatever yeah. how did the beat invitationals kind of change everything i mean i remember after the first one it was like all right this is the you know this is the we're shit. gonna have to do this a few times more who was playing at the first one who do we have on the first one we have fly low on the first one mm-hmm, i think we everybody. did we, we might have even had saw raw at the time nah uh, no shafiq did one with us we had saw raw yeah yeah, yeah we um, had one once there was uh but yeah, I forget it was on the very first one, but it was definitely just like by the second one and the third one, and even by the time we got to like ten and eleven, it was just clear that there was just this huge um, effect we could have, you know, on the scene with that stuff. And it was just about again everyone bringing their best music to the table. Um, there was no judge, you know. There was meaning that you know we weren't saying who's first place, second place, third place. It was like you're being judged by your peers, which was seemingly even more you know kind of frightening in a way and you know seeing the social media the next day like so and so killed it and you're like oh shit i just fuck because once in a while you're like oh i'm gonna take a risk and play something that isn't banging maybe they'll be open like mistake you gotta just you gotta just go for down. blood yeah for me the beat invitationals created my first two records that i released to the world the only reason why i had any music besides Ganja Sufi, a Sufi and a Killer album, parts one and two, which two never came out, but it's sitting there. I made a ton of shit for Sumach and Ganja Sufi, the whole thing. That was all I was doing until the beat invitationals. And then I was like, oh my God, how do I take these loops and add live drums? And I would bring my drum set, I would bring my 303. I was trying to, like, my beats just didn't hit the way everyone's were hitting. So I was like, all right, I can scratch. These guys can't do that. I have played live drums over a loop off so, my 303. So basically, you just started like, cheating. Yeah, <laughs> it's my party. I can fucking do what I want. You know, Kev was like, six minutes, two beats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, fuck that. I'm going to play five beats in six minutes live <laughs> on my drums with a 303. I was like, I don't sound like these guys. I got to come with my edge. What's my what's my angle? Yeah, yeah. what makes you special? And then mm. that ended up being My Troubled Mind and Death Gate, literally only because of the beat invitationals that my music emerged yeah. and people loved it. And I was like, all right, this is good enough. Yeah. So who were the That's first amazing. like kind of stars? Of star? Was it like Fung Lotus and No Sage thing were like the first kind of two that kind of 
came out of. Yeah, I mean, you know, Fly Low. Sam I Am was a Sam I Am was a cult hero as well, man. I right, mean, even right. though he didn't live in L.A., every time we had Sam, people were bugging on Sam's shit. Free, free the Sam Robots as well. Big draw early on. I remember um, Fly Low dropped his A Million remix for a beat imitational, and that was like a moment. <sighs> yeah. You know, because it was a big ass song, and all the kids knew it. You know what I mean? And he dropped that, and everyone just like lit up. That was cool. There he was might a have lot been the first person to play vocals in the beat imitational. Beat imitational. Too. That was, I think, for me, the beat imitational. That particular one, I think, if that's right, what I'm thinking of was like my favorite long run moment because I never had seen that many people in our place. Because I think shortly after that, we started getting hit with you know issues and shit, but. I just remember looking out and seeing the entire balcony packed, the bottom packed, the inside packed, you know, like mm -hmm. people on the side of the speakers and shit. And you're like, damn. Then it was just us. It's just the 10 guys playing beats, some of us off CDs. You know, it wasn't even like a spectacle, but kid just wanted to hear new shit. That many kids. I thought that was crazy. Mm -hmm. in, it is still crazy. It's still crazy. Like the Eagle Rock Music Festival, half of what I dealt with that day was just shock, you know? <laughs> Like, I was, yeah, was fucking nuts. shocked. Like, Kev was like, you got to go on now because D's running late. I had just finished with Blank Blue, so I'm, like, sweating. I expected to see maybe a 1,000 people. And then when I popped up and saw, like, five, I was like, damn. Which turned into 15,000. I, I, I had to do this right now. Like, I didn't, I just, I don't know. Still, to this day, I'm like, fuck, that was maddening, you know? <laughs> yeah, so then... And then, like what, like odd with the Odd Future show was pretty. I mean, that was a pretty legend. How did you? How did that end up happening? Because that, that was, I remember, they just. That was early. I mean, yeah, um, uh, Flying Lotus had brought Tyler to the club. Um, when he was barely old. Like, enough so this to is get like in. summer 2010. He was literally yeah. 18 when. This was, was early 2010. 2010. Right. Tyler's at the club. We exchanged contact information, um, and I just stayed on it with them. And then the videos were starting to crack. I just hit him direct. That first booking happened just direct, me and Tyler. Um, and it was their first real show. He was talking about on Larry King yesterday. He shouted it out Low and Theory. He's like, they asked about his first gig and he was like, I went to this place Low and Theory. And he was saying that they got 500 bucks and they split it five ways. And like he's like, we're on. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then Larry King died right there. <laughs> yeah, like, like, old age. <laughs> that was it. Larry King can Rest never in die. peace, Larry King. No, it's awesome. That, no, that's die. right, though. We gave him 500 bucks and. They were stoked, and it was they killed it. I mean, you knew that, that was like at that show. I seen the, came out the, the weirdest mix of people yeah. ever. That was it was yeah. like the yeah. oldest people and the youngest people. Mm -hmm. Like every suit. Well, I think I've every ever suit. Weren't they like, trying to hit, like yeah. Yeah. holler? Oh, yeah, it was industry out that night too. There was like a bunch of people there to see them. There was also like the top brass of every major label, and all these big indies were there. Mm -hmm. um, but you saw like kids screaming the lyrics at the top of their lungs, like. Mm. I don't know. I haven't seen anything like that since, like, I mean, I just look like some punk shit, you know, where the kid is feeling it, like, almost more than the dude performing it. And it was fucking scary, you know what I mean? It's like, that was damn, the these guys, whatever they're on, <laughs> they're it, you know what I mean? That's the first time I felt the floor upstairs bend in. Yeah, that was scary. Where <laughs> we were just like, oh, shit, we might never have a show here again. <laughs> we might fall, you know? That was like, I, I think that was like the first like mosh pit we had there too, right? It was. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't honestly, know if it was the first mosh pit. But I think of, it was the first mosh pit because before, like, before the, that era, that everything that was no, we had, we had them during the dubstep the era. Oh, there yeah. was, but <laughs> Death Grips, that was one of my favorite shows we ever had, oh, was man, Death Grips. Was, yeah. And that was early. That was right when the, the guillotine video dropped. Um, Elvin got a hold of him online. We're like, all right, will you guys come Elvin down here? Elvin was friends with Zach, yep, the and, drummer. And they didn't, didn't, 
you know, uh, they were down, and it sounded so good that night too. We just, yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah, I think a lot of decisions that Elvin's made in the booking, because taste wise, like I saw the Death Grip videos, and I was like, this sounds like a guy from Skid Row. I do not want <laughs> like like this is horrible, you know. And but you know him going for it, and you know, and reaching out to him. It was like uh, it was one of those things where you don't think it works at first, and then you finally see it, and you're like, "Oh, okay, I get it now." You know, yeah. There's just certain songs that come out, and I'm like, "I want to hear that song in my club live." Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, "I need to hear Guillotine on our system because up until that point, I hadn't really heard too much blown out bass stuff, and when that hits, when I played it at first, played it at low end, I was like, "Damn!" You know, it sounds like it's coming out of the speaker right there. Mm-hmm. So. I just didn't know live they were going to be that crazy. You know, like mm. the dude from Hella on drums, shit, I had no idea. Yeah. What are the other more memorable shows that you guys come up on? You know what I'm going to say, and they're going to get all mad at me. Riff Raff. Riff Raff. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> I would yeah. never get mad at you. Everything about that was a movie. Like, how rappers <laughs> yeah. say my life is a movie. Ra- from 8 p.m. when he got there to when he left, it was a movie. This one kid still complains that he got rice in his eye and he's still hot. <laughs> <laughs> he's like <laughs> tweeting you in Riff Raff, like, at Jody High Roller, at Gaslamp Killer. The rice, rice is still in, in there. My <laughs> eye. A grain of rice in your eye, like behind his eye, in his brain at this point, probably. <laughs> yeah. That rice is turned into a field in his head. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was definitely a trip. I mean, you know, the Tom York, you know, nights yeah. were How did the Tom memorable. York thing come to terms? You know, th- that happened. Um, I got the heads up on that about a week prior. Um, Flying Lotus, just I think he called, texted me or called me. He did it real casually, like, oh, yeah, my, by the way, I think Tom York wants to play next week. And I was kind of like, whatever, what dude. Fuck? You know, it's <laughs> like, it's kind of, and he's like, no, for real. So over the weekend, it was still looking good. Um, and then on the Tuesday... Flylo posted on Facebook. He wrote tomorrow, but he spelled it T H O M O R R O W. That began that at that point it leaked. Everybody kind of knew there was the huge line. And then guess what? Around four or five o'clock that day, it's not looking good anymore. He's pretty much saying, I'm not gonna do it. Um so we're still looking like, all right, Mighty changes mind. It comes to ten o'clock or nine thirty when we started. I remember I told James, like, you gotta announce right now because People, you know, um, are expecting to see this. It's not happening. And he said straight up, like, we know you guys are expecting to see Tom York in here tonight. We got news for you guys. It's not happening. Sorry. And I just remember the vibe in the room died. So many people waited, and then they all left. A lot yeah, of, yeah, half the people Instead left. of being cool, yeah, they all like, just started leaving. I know that you guys are star fuckers, but... But there were so many people outside. <laughs> that just the back I know you guys yeah, really want to see a famous dude play here tonight. But you're just gonna have to deal with good music all night. I mean, I really loved. Sorry, the second time was actually my favorite. <laughs> I really loved walking out. Well, the second, well, the second time we nobody, not nobody knew, but we kept it under wraps. Yeah, um, and that was the night he sang yeah. and, and everything. And but that first one, I remember too. Flying Lotus came down to kind of. He just felt so bad about the whole thing because he felt like he jinxed it. You know what I mean by by posting by it. posting this thing. Uh, he extended himself. Now it's like, how is this gonna look? Um, and this is right after Cosmogram, not right after, but this is after Cosmogram had come out. And but then he went out, took a picture of the line, uh, emailed it, didn't text it to me, emailed it to Tom York, and then he replied, and he and he showed me the reply because he was, you know, uh, ecstatic, you know, when he got the reply, and it said, "Fuck it, I'm coming," and that was around eleven, maybe, you know. And then uh, I want to say we got him on at like twelve, twelve thirty, and. Uh, 
Yeah, and then what, he played Mad Villain. He played Mad Villain, played Nigel Godrich in the yeah. crowd. I mean, yeah. you know, it was just crazy. Played but zombie. when he played yeah. Mad Villain, though, the crowd, that was insane. They lost it, man. Everyone was singing along to that shit. It was about weed. It was a song about weed. It was so good. And we were just smoking mad amount of weed in there that night, too. Just, <laughs> None of us left the stage. We all wanted to be a part of it, so we were just smoking in there. <laughs> And uh, then Badu is obviously another one. Oh, dude, so when I was going to ask actually. James Blake. Yeah, Badu. 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 Questlove. Um, was it really memorable? Q-tip memorable recently, one. yeah. Well, Questlove, what was awesome about that was um, we went, he had us, me and me and Frank went out to go get him from his car. He parked in the, the back lot and he wanted to be walked in or his manager wanted to be walked in. Um, so we went out there to go get him and I saw him out there on his laptop and he was like, He's like, man, I don't know if I'm ready to go in there yet. And I'm like, what do you mean, man? It's all good. And he's like, dude. And he's like, no, actually, I, kn- I know about you guys. Like, <laughs> I know you guys take it seriously. Everyone in that room is going to know all these songs I have. I don't, I don't feel good. I, I, I got to get it together. You know what I mean? It was just... Of course, I was. Did just you like, tell him you sounded like a real bitch right now? No, and that's why he played Carly Rae Jepsen to kick off his you set. S- exactly. <laughs> that was like, I didn't know how I'd feel about that. Uh, yeah, it made me feel some kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> no, I told him you got nothing to worry about. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we're just happy to have you here, and you know, let's let, let's have fun. But uh, that was a he was he a real, played, real was nice a good guy. Side. He played like all unreleased Dilla stuff. I think, right? Yeah, no, like it was the Roots playing Dilla. Oh, okay, he played his band's version of oh, the no, Dilla no, tracks huh. every day at the Jimmy Kimmel show instead of taking lunch they bring they bring bag lunches so their lunch breaks they're in this 10 million dollar studio recording all these Dilla covers what? and that's what they do every single day they have hundreds they probably have almost a thousand Damn, Dilla beat really? covers that only a few select people have I have like 102 yeah. but there's like 900 now yeah of all dilla covers damn every day at lunch they do that sick that's what quest love told me last time i talked to him about it and i asked him where are these he's like we only put out the one and the dilla estate is very clear about not overusing his name and his music and his vibe like so we just do it for the love and i'm like can i get some please (laughs) I was gonna ask you, yeah, how much does that like dub play, tra- the DJ dub play tradition, kind of play into what you guys do in your sets? I hide all my shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, none of us ever. We never had CDJs except for the Beat Invitational, and none of us. I just noticed the Brits would just have ask for C- CDJs when they came over. Yeah, and yeah. you know, when I first saw Scream and Benga in 2006 in England, they were playing these dub plates that they spend, you know, 50 bucks to cut. Yeah. And they play 50 times and they sound like shit. Yeah. They did not care. They were playing them hundreds of times. I saw Benga's set at the Manchester Warehouse Project and every dub plate he played skipped. Like obnoxiously bad. <laughs> and he's got the whole crowd in the palm of his hand and the shit skips and it goes to, and like people were like, oh, but then they just keep dancing. Every track he played, every 10 inch skipped. I'm like, this is stupid you guys have to find another way to do this it's not gonna skipping records during your show everybody's hype and the shit skips like that was first world problems that we shouldn't deal with anymore like it was was obnoxious but then cdj's and serato i mean it turned it into like a what do you got 
comic book collector yeah. type <laughs> shit. It like, became well, like all, digging all over again for real. Yeah, covering your records with stickers and all that shit. I, I mean, just have the font real big and change the names of most of the guys. <laughs> I do for real. He does. Oh, this is totally Dick Loke right here. This is Dick Loke <laughs> with a song called Penis Me. They're like, oh, it's, it's that Penis Me song. Oh, shit. <laughs> There are still train spotters who have laser vision who can look at your computer screen. No, but really, I mean, I think the whole idea that we can play brand new stuff, right? I mean, that 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 really gave that gave us so much ammo, um, especially in the early days, and we're getting all the early Flying Lotus demos. And well, people want to know how it sounded in the system. Yeah, they, they wanted to hear it. They were giving it to us so to we could tell them how it sounded. Yeah, or they wanted to be there and hear if it. they couldn't be there, though, right, they would yeah. still give it to us, like, yo, how does this sound? Yeah. And how did the crowd react? Like, we were laboratory testing for Flylo every week. Totally. And plus, too, I mean, I get to totally exercise my advantage of doing all this mastering, right? So, mm -hmm. in addition to, you know, doing the mastering in the studio, I get to take freshly, you know, baked cuts and right to the, right to the stage. I was going to ask, too, how do you think, like, uh, obviously, Marianne Hobbs started championing it pretty early on, like, before, actually, the American press did. Yes. How, how do you think that kind of played a role? Because you guys got really big in Europe, I think, even maybe yeah, I mean that was that was huge for us. I mean the the BBC stuff she was doing for us. Yeah. yeah, I mean that was that was huge. Um, she booked Lotus for Sonar. She booked me for Sonar the next year. Yeah, I mean it was that she was really the person I think responsible for breaking this whole sound in Europe, and then and then just caught on. You know, um, seemingly in the U.S. it just took a few more big releases, and I think it just took the series of these big. Uh, albums that came out from different people in the camp, you know, like Gaslamp, uh, Nosage, Thundercat. Uh, I was I was in London for Lotus's first big show at Cargo, and I knew a guy that ran Cargo's booking through my friend Cherry Stones. So Cherry Stones pushed him to book me, and then he found out I was friends with Flying Lotus, so he booked me to open, and I paid for my own way and everything to get out there, and and like it was the first time I had I had performed in London. And I, I was supposed to open for Steve and they switched it. And they're like, you know, people got to get the last train at 12. So Steve's going to go on at 11 instead of 12. And you have to go on after him. I'm like, what the fuck? What kind of cruel joke is this? <laughs> mm -hmm. Next thing you know, I'm standing there. Benji B, Giles Peterson and Marianne Hobbs were all in the front fucking row for Flylo's set. And I'm thinking, oh, this is it. Like the three biggest BBC DJs are standing here waiting for Steve to play his first big London show. The, the first show he did was an in-store at a record shop. He didn't even have a show. He just did an in-store when he was over there. And that was like people spilling out in the streets, like 500 people in a 50-person record shop. And then when he finally had his first show, I got to open it. Like it was strategic almost, but nobody meant. It was like strategic on their part on the brits part to come out to see this sure, guy sure yeah. it was a real meaningful night i mean that's when i met my agent in the first place who ended up booking me now 15 tours in europe wow. since that so time. this around when los angeles came out yeah. yeah and that's when i met my agent i met benji b i met marianne hobbs i met giles peterson all in the same night they were all there to see steve did you think calling it los angeles kind of i mean that was obviously a huge record do you think that kind of also help like publicize the fact that there was something in Los Angeles rather than just you know some well sure I mean you know in the case of Steve I mean he consciously made a decision to make low in theory part of his narrative and um, you know I commonly refer to him as as the gateway drug for people you know a lot of people will discover his music first uh, dig a little deeper and then they find low in theory very quickly and then kind of dive in um, and uh, 
yeah, his his uh, support and willingness to you know be a part of this and keep coming to the club and try to be inspired by it and push things from it. Um, you know, it's it's been a you know instrumental in the whole process. Does anyone stand out who maybe doesn't get the kind of attention that you think was really influential and kind of instrumental to either the sound or kind of just DBS? Monopoly for me. I think Monopoly, like that one weird point where like beat music was getting influenced by dubstep. Uh, like the Beatles, like he, when like, he put out like Beatles, bitch, and like yeah, like, I think yeah, all those, those songs yeah. are like. I always talk about doing a Nuggets type box set of the beat scene, and oh yeah, Monopoly would have like five songs on yeah. it, you know. Yeah, I, for me, like uh, seeing like I, I think DiBiase was the first dude that I, I met that was like just about beats. I remember DiBiase like being a rapper, you know, and uh, he one day he just I came to the blow and he just stopped. He was like, I'm never rapping again. He was a rapper. Yeah, he was a rapper, yeah. Wow. yeah. I'm never rapping again. All I'm going to do is just play these beats. This was like maybe like 2001 or something like that. And um, you know, even like when when he plays, there's something just like super genuine about about what he does, you know. And uh the kids I, I, it, even like as the eras change, you know. Uh if it would go to a dubstep era or a trap era or a super like synthy era or whatnot, like he can still play and he can still like command the crowd. And it's like a, you know, I don't know. I, I think I, I want to say like to me, I think he's he's the, he's, if like you know, Lotus is like the, you know, is like the Christ. I think like Dibiase is like the Holy Ghost, the guy that doesn't get the credit, but is definitely, yeah. you know, had a big influence. I want to say guys like John Wayne. I want to say uh, DB DB and Elvin probably brought John Wayne into the circle, and he was like a big share. He's like, what's that called? He's like a, a maven in, in a sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, even like I, I was gonna say, like you know, someone like Bad when he did his first residency I think that was the first time he really got attention or mm-hmm. Shlomo I remember when he first started playing those early shows and now he's does kind of but how how important do you think uh, that kind of conscious like eclecticism and like refusal to kind of you know pigeonhole it as a certain type of music kind of has allowed it to have the kind of longevity it's had I mean critical I mean I want to say that's been done by design um, we've really resisted you know any kind of pigeonhole term except maybe the beat scene which is which is the least pretentious of yeah, all of all labels yeah it's the least yeah. pretentious and it's more i don't know talking about a community of people versus an actual genre right mm-hmm. and the fact that a bunch of these guys can kind of operate um in a bunch of different ways and genres you know like elvin maybe being the best example of that you know able to produce beats in all these different forms um that that i think has kind of kept kept us fresh i mean honestly too i think was what we do at our weekly, a lot of it has to do with our booking. I think it comes down to that, being on top of what's coming through, what's new, being competitive with that. Because um, we know, you know, if we if we don't do that, we'll we'll have a slow night, you know. And um, and granted, I, I don't. I think all it takes is one slow night for us to realize and to remember how that can be and how we really need to stay on top of it. If we have a slow night, then the strippers at Deja Vu don't get my money. <laughs> then there's some kid that doesn't get opera house yeah. to be foreclosed upon. And then there's some kid that doesn't eat lunch at school tomorrow, <laughs> and he gets a bad grade, and he could be the next president. Like I can't, we can't do that. We can't have a slow night. <laughs> what is hey. I mean, I think too, like, you know, things. Again, back to the kind of how things started and where we got to. You know, we had a. I want to say our first year was really us getting it together. And I think when we added Dave, it it really, it it felt like a group, for real, you know, and that this was going to be the cast, 
Um, and I think that at this point we're all, you know, we're all we all recognize that, you know, there's, there's no changing that. And, um, cause you know, there's things that we, a lot of things we agree on. There's also things we don't agree on. You know what I mean? Um, music programming, um, you know, a lot, a lot, there's, there's plenty of things on that level that, you know, songs that I love that Elvin hates and songs that Elvin loves that I hate and that goes all across the board. And, um, it's just about, you know, kind of, kind of coming to terms with the team and, you know, it's something that I try to live by is that, you know, uh, what's, you know, really, it, this is a group think endeavor, you know, and we have to be on the same page about what we're doing and uh, so obviously you know kind of going into the festival obviously that was that, that was something i know you've been wanting to do for a long time and kind of what was yeah we i mean we've been talking about the festival concept for well over a year um i you know i, I think that's a collective idea that we all thought it was something that could really succeed um we really wanted you know, we were talking to various entities last year about maybe getting with us to help partner with us, but we just couldn't land the meetings and we couldn't make it happen. We just, it wasn't tangible enough for them. And now they got the vapors. No, well, <laughs> they do have the vapors. But then we had to, I felt like we just had to put our flag down and just do one on our own. The only way we know how to do it. Uh, very grassroots, no sponsor. Um, Echo Echoplex, which is a place where we've done low-end theory events before. Um, and no I've one doing, was there for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. During 2007, that was a dark summer. You know, <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> we, we threw a Mars Volta show at the Echoplex when it first opened. Yeah, and that was the only Mars Volta show that year in LA. Yeah, and that was, it was the first so show for the hard new album. to get into. It was insane how many people were there that never ever came to Low End. They yeah. were just obsessed fans. Well, the ticket sold out in like a few minutes, if I remember correctly, and it was just insane. That was a great night for us. Yeah, that was great for us. I'm talking about when we moved it there, when we were yeah, beefing with Airliner and we, and we moved to Little Temple. We did a stint at Little Temple and Echo. Like two months. Plex for months. two months, and that was a dark time. You know, I mean, we had really low turnouts. People were not into it. Elvin, you got kicked out of Echo Plex the first night. What happened with that? Um, I was just trying to bring someone backstage to smoke my medical marijuana because I have a condition, <laughs> and uh, the backstage woman wouldn't let me walk her back there, so I just walked him back there, and then the big mean guy came and handled me. Oh, I had I got to know what that guy. I went, to, I did it. I was like, like partially promoting a Jizza show. They threw me out of the backstage. It was crazy. Yeah. Of your own motherfucking show. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. They had just opened. Wow. They didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. I remember them taking kids' weed. Oh, yeah. They, they tried to like, take my weed. The security would just like, you can't have weed here. Give me your weed. And if the kids would just give them the weed, they can stay. If the kids like put up a fight, they would take the weed and then kick them out. Yeah. Mm. You know? Well, I feel like that's one of the cool mm. things about it. You know, not to... But like the airliner, I feel like there is a certain kind of... Uh, Leniency Gen towards medical patients. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now you know how it feels to have smoke in your face, you damn cigarette fiend. I mean, <laughs> Who are you talking about? All of you. <laughs> just uh, looking at you like usual. <laughs> personally. I feel, like, I feel like we're in like, uh, what's that shit called? Uh, that 70s show, the pizza scene? Uh, the, camera uh, that, the Echoplex, though, my problem there was our two most devoted self-proclaimed most devoted low-end theory fans was a husband and wife couple mm -hmm. who came up to me and said you've whitewashed your club by moving it to echoplex 
Yeah, I remember them saying, you, fo- you sold out. You sold yeah, out. You, walking but they away said with you whitewashed your club yeah. by yeah. moving to Echoplex. And then they said, <laughs> if you like, if you guys don't move it back to Airliner, we're going to boycott this place. And we're going to make flyers that say, fuck Low End Theory, they sold out. Really? And they directed this at me. <laughs> For some reason, like, I was in charge of the whole thing. And they're like, Gaslamp, man. And I was like, you know what? You guys should just leave. They were like, we were on our way out. And then the, the woman said... Man, I loved you. I loved you. You were my favorite DJ. And now, I fucking hate you. I fucking hate your guts. And then they went home and just had hate sex. sold out. I was just like, oh my God. It broke my heart. The rest of my night was ruined. Every time I saw them after that, they kept coming. When we move back to airliner, they're like, "This is what we're talking about." I was just like, "Fuck you! I don't even want to hear that." But they kept coming, and I had to see them every week after that. I remember them. Weren't you? You guys? There was talk about doing like a devo- you were thinking about doing like a venue at one point. Like, sure, still yeah. eventually, maybe. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but the thing is, what we realize about Low End Theory is that the airliner is a big part of our success, and you know, um, I mean, there's a every now and again this topic. Gets you know comes up online where fan you know people who follow us and go to the club will start saying you guys need to move, you need to move the venue. I mean that's the most common. Every time we have feed- a big night, I mean yeah, it's not so much nicer though than when it first started. <laughs> sure. yeah. But but that said, I mean we we just I tell people all the time like don't even don't even go there. I mean you know that we're not leaving the airliner. We're gonna we're gonna we were born there. We're gonna die there. I don't know? I don't think fans understand that like you know like. You have Tom York one night, once a year, right? Yeah. But then let's say, you know, you book some kid that only has like a hundred, but some amazing, amazing producer or rapper or a band. They only have like 300 followers, right? And we book them. They don't really, you know, they we wouldn't be able to take the risk on like, you know, the, these young talented dudes with no followers if we moved to a bigger venue. That was a problem with the Echoplex is that, Every time we had to Babe Ruth it, every time we had to swing for a home run, and Babe Ruth fucking struck out a whole lot of times, you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I, I don't think that uh, any other venue would be better because in L.A., there's no, ven- there's no venue that, that, w- that was, like, grain-friendly like the airliner, for one. Yeah. Uh, secondly... Um, not, like, a legal one, at least. Yeah, not a, not, yeah, not yeah. a legal one. And, yeah. and it had that perfect mix of, like... Like, even that neighborhood right now, like, in Highland, uh, that's Lincoln Heights. That's, like, ungentrified hood. Sure. You can't have that in Hollywood. You can't have that in a gentrified yeah. Echo Park. Well, I can think about how, how lame it could have got real fast if it wasn't Hollywood. It would have just been, like, swarmed by assholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Definitely. I'd hate myself survive, my gold yeah. chain would be so shiny. Yeah. No, <laughs> we would not have survived there. <laughs> we wouldn't have got the support. Well, I feel like yeah. because it's so far, like, you have to be, you have to, like, like the music. Because it's, like, if you're willing to drive, like, 20 minutes into, like, Lincoln Heights mm-hmm. from wherever you live, then you probably are really there for the music, not just to, like, be cool or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it's the issue. There's zero tourist element at yeah. Low in Theory. I mean, versus, you know, you go up to Hollywood, you know, um, there's... Uh, large percentage of the people in that club that aren't there for the music they're just there because their hotel's next door yeah, yeah. and, and also, they got like cowboy hats on you're in the W crowd no I mean you know that clearly you know yeah. okay they're just you know they're just out because yeah. you know they got money to spend you know and also since it's a genuine LA music experience like people that are artists 
and actors and all kind of stuff in, in Hollywood. I remember this was like 06, 07. This is before the the Batman movie. Like Heath Ledger, like Kev was like, I want to introduce you to somebody. He was like, this guy, man, uh, Heath Ledger. And I was like, oh, you're the guy from that night movie, the horrible, horrible musical. You know? <laughs> R.I.P. Heath Ledger. I you bet know? you he really Obviously, said that. you didn't see 10 Things I Hate About You. No, Classic. I didn't see that. I didn't, I, I'm not a rom-com. <laughs> that sounds like a rom-com. I don't know. <laughs> One of the better ones. <laughs> but, you know, uh, like I, a lot of like, what I understand about like Hollywood is like they actually like pay or like egg people on to show up like famous people to show up but with low low end i think like you get like every strata person you get like you know like you know kids from like compton you get kids from like the valley you get the most unfamousy unfamousy people the most talented people like the most uh famous people that you can ever get in one room and nobody gives a fuck about any of that for that four hour span you know it's really just like a it's the closest thing to it is like the fucking traffic court you know what i'm saying it's like a leveler you know. Traffic court. Yeah. <laughs> every person from every walk of life is here yeah. paying their every second. It's like the opposite of traffic court, dude. Como se dice lowest common denominator. <laughs> <laughs> we love our fans so much. Mm-hmm. We're so devoted to this community. We always have been. And uh, it's, it's very... It shows in mm-hmm. the people's reactions to the music. Last night, I play there every week. Last night, I started a mosh pit. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to. It just happened with the music that I played. And the mm-hmm. amount of energy people give us every week is mm-hmm. unprecedented for L.A. I mean, yeah, everyone yeah. says people stand at, at shows with their arms crossed in L.A. Well, not at motherfucking low-end theater. Not here. No fucking <laughs> way. Oh, yeah, I, mean, I mean, arguably one of the liveest crowds in the world. I mean, people cross their arms at every show, bob their heads. You know, they're kind of checking it out. At low end, they're not afraid to show their support. Yeah. Especially when 18 like, and under, I think, like, is... It's 18 of, and up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all it's 18 and under. <laughs> it's it's under. Kev, Kev, Dave, Elvin, they have to stay on the stage all the time. Yeah. <laughs> James yeah. and I, we we look we look yeah. young, you know. We, we mingle. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we mingle with the jail bait. No, <laughs> I've seen so many. I've seen so many. Uh, so many uh, white girls drop it low at low end. Like like no one like no one cares, bro. I've seen so many mosh pits. I haven't. I've seen point one fights though. People. Yeah. Never. People. I've seen something almost happen like a couple weeks ago but it was like they just realized where they were they're like no we can't do this like um, you know not to jinx it but it, it, it seems like a sacred place people just go to have fun you know and uh, and listen to good music and maybe I'd, I'd like to imagine that when people leave, leave there I think their taste might change you know a little bit like they leave and they're just like I mean I definitely have told a lot of musicians to like and like I'll interview them like, like yeah you should check that out cause like you know I think a lot of you know, it is like it still remained kind of an underground thing to, to you know as much as it can be in, in a good way because I think that uh, you know a lot of musicians, especially in the industry, they don't kind of have like access to, like underground beat music or like or just random kind of no. It's, in the it's industry, weird they're shit. Corn yeah, shit right yeah. Now. Like so, producers and beat makers, they have no idea. It's just interesting how like the Hollywood, you know, the the scene you think of when you think of Hollywood or radio is like kind of divorced from it and kind of. But then there are crossover artists, obviously, like a Badu or a Tommy Orker. Mm-hmm. But they're not who you think of when you think of radio artists. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think these days, I mean, it's it's the lines are blurrier than ever, right? Between yeah. major and indie, and, and yeah, what's... and it should be said, like you guys play. I mean, like Alvin plays a lot of like, you know, Drake, Migos, yeah, Future. Turn on the lights. I think, I I think, saw I think Migos is, is, is technically underground. That shit is underground. Still. <laughs> so is Drake, dude. Drake is not underground. <laughs> but, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but even still, man, like there's like 
like in terms of artists that, that that have been there there's all kind of major artists that have been there and just soaking yeah. up game and staring at motherfuckers yeah. you know Idris Alba killing it as well well no not not people playing yeah, but just people going but yeah Idris yeah. Alba yeah yes. fucking Nelson Mandela was in that motherfucker yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um he was so musty so you know uh, we're about to wrap up but you know obviously the f was there kind of a thing for, obviously your first festival was there like the idea of kind of reflecting kind of the artist kind of that I mean, obviously, they're ones that have played the club a million times. Sure, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, for this first one, we really tried to make it like a low in theory all stars mm -hmm. uh, type of moment. Um, but I mean, I think I speak for everyone here saying that we view the festival as as the ultimate destination for what low in theory is going to become. Because um, mm -hmm. we're all, you know, we we we've talked about it um, plenty of times about the longevity of a weekly club. Mm -hmm. How long we can keep this up? Say it ain't um, so. No, I'm saying like you know, I mean, I'm I'm my goal, not I mean not recent goal, but you know, um, a few years ago, I think when we hit five, I was like, all right, look, if we can hit ten, I'll feel, I think I'll feel fulfilled mm -hmm. about the whole thing, and we'll be able to sleep at night knowing we really put in a solid decade. That was you know, in my mind, that's like a big milestone to try to achieve. But I think the rate things are going. I mean, we're about to be eight in a few months. Um, we're like four That's months wild. away from yeah. our eighth birthday. Um, I mean, I think this thing is going 10, 12 minimum at this point, um, so long as the airliner stays open and, and we don't get any more big trouble. You know, we've been in trouble quite a bit uh, over the years. Um, I mean, <laughs> Sounds so funny. Most recently with a you know riot situation in October. Oh, yeah, that was... Um, that, yeah, what happened with the tower, the creator? Uh, that was just, the you know, these four dudes rushed the... I mean, the thing was, yeah, the, there was over, I don't know, maybe 1,500, 2,000 people just on the street. Line, it, was just it was just a couple bad ones. Yeah, yeah, just but, two, yeah. two or three guys were four, acting wrong. Well, yeah. four dudes tried to rush the door. Mm -hmm. They stopped them. I mean, they, they yeah. stopped them. They didn't go. They didn't get in. But that created this whole fracas where the line, which was like 10 deep off the wall, everyone just started leaning over to look what was going on because there was just this whole yeah. energy thing happening up there. And the next thing you know, there's like 10 people in the street. Yeah, it's Tyler quieted people, them it's 100. Jesus. Well, that, at that point, it was already, the cops had already yeah. come when Tyler went out there. It was already over by the time he yeah. went out there. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we dodged a bullet there. I mean, you know, to, to us, it's just really, I think we had to assume responsibility there for advertising a lineup for someone, you know, what the Tyler creator, uh, Flying Lotus, uh, dual headline. I mean, I honestly thought the club could handle it. That was just hubris. But, but, but yeah, but obviously not. It was just such an impact on the block that it yeah. just, you know, w it was destined to fail. Um, we there was no violence. There was no tear gas. There were no yeah, pepper spray. No, there was not one it, person was injured or anything. As far as riots go, so it wasn't go, a real riot. Yeah, as far as riots go, it was pretty, pretty. It was a minor. It wasn't a riot. It wasn't a riot. It wasn't a riot at all. But I just think like the news said it was a riot. <laughs> no, it was. It was technically it was a it riot deployment. Up. So it was a riot deployment. As far as the LAPD is concerned, that was a riot. You know, it was a tactical oh, alert. You know. Yeah, they took it away. I mean, I understand why they took it seriously, but they were taking it a little yeah, more not seriously. No, it's all good. No, no, rightfully so. I mean, yeah, we learned our lesson. We're trying to book appropriately and and scale it correctly. We know when we have something that's too big to announce, we don't announce it. We won't. Yeah. Um and. I think that's what's one a cool thing that we we're gonna try to embrace that and have tried to embrace it and yeah. uh, 
we would just continue to, you know, operate again. We're just trying to shock people, you know. I, I just have to say, the cops made that shit look way out of proportion. It's like regime change, or the news, in fucking I mean, Egypt or something. I mean, like, I mean, it was breaking news. They stopped. They they like stopped regular broadcasting to, in LA on three. To Tyler's credit, though, he had them like quiet as a church mouse. <laughs> like, oh, like you could this. hear a pin drop. Mm-hmm. Check this out. The next morning, I, I called the management to apologize because you know no show went down. I I you know I didn't want to. I, I felt like really bad about the whole thing and i i called um uh over there to uh to to the odd future management and i was like hey i'm so sorry i got you know last night what a disaster and then they stopped me immediately I was like, dude stop kev stop he's like dude you know what as far as we're concerned that could not have gone better <laughs> totally and i was like really and it was just <laughs> because it was such a media thing and they were saying tyler the creator over and over again on channel five and channel four and channel seven this was all that appearance was just supposed to be a festival preview you know a preview show for their big carnival yeah. and as far as the publicity they received from that um they racked that value at over a million dollars you know so him getting You're on welcome. the, on the cops. <laughs> him getting on the cops intercom had to be the funniest shit ever. Yeah, world star yeah. moment. Yeah, definitely. He literally said while using the cops megaphone, "You know how the LAPD can get. We don't want anybody to get hurt." And at that point, the police officer grabbed the cord and yeah. yanked it, but he didn't let go. Oh yeah. no, they got into it. He said, I think yeah, the cop grabbed the cord out of exact his quote hand. was something oh. like, they're like, yeah, like, like, you know how LAPD is, they're at, they can be assholes. And then that turned into the whole, you know, <laughs> they tried to grab the mic. He was like, ah, ah, no, he held on to it. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, well, the festival was sold out immediately, so I would say, this is the part where we'd be like, you should buy a ticket, but it was sold out. You, like, can't, you can't come. You yeah, should buy tickets we're, we're next actually, year. We're not pubbing it that much because we get, we get flamed now when we talk about it on Twitter. So, But we're sorry to everyone who didn't get tickets, but we didn't want to overdo it. Right. I we mean, wanted to start small. We're starting small. That's how we've always done it. You know what? The, 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 the early, the, the, <laughs> well, as soon as we announced it, I don't feel that bad about it because tickets were available for a week up until the actual lineup announced, and yeah. then they went in two days. Um, I mean, I, I think that's a long enough window for people to be informed. We were going full blast on it. That's true. Through everybody's channels. I yep. mean, uh, and the, the only way we know to reach our audience. And, <clears throat> I mean, I, of course, we want as many people accommodated as possible, but do know that this is just the first of, of many of these, and we plan on expanding this to different territories um, and really becoming the primary business uh, for what Low End Theory becomes after the weekly comes to an end. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks, Los Angeles. Thank you. This is on the internet, man. This is worldwide. Still, thanks, Los Angeles. (laughs) Sweet. All right. Shots fired. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)